What is disease ecology? It's, um, I'm going to, first of all, introduce the, the topic. Um, then I'm going to give you an overview of what will happen this term. Um, and then I'll turn to approaches. And what will happen is I'll start slowly, like Rebel's Bolero, and build up to go up faster and faster and faster towards the end as I run out of time. So just be aware, this is all planned. Okay, <laughs> he lied. First of all, the um, human ecology privileges human beings. You know, general ecology is about the interrelatedness of species um, and how they live their lives on their own in relation to others. With humans, with human ecology, it is humans, not other species. So it's very much a case of thinking about the disease patterns and the diseases that affect human beings, not other species. I mean, we can talk about simian immunodeficiency virus if we want. What about you know, chimpanzee um, simian immunodeficiency virus if we want? But we're not talking about that. If we talk about immunodeficiency <coughs> viruses, we're talking about human immunodeficiency viruses. Nature is full of potential pathogens that infect other animals. We're totally focused on human beings, a very kind of egotistical kind of approach to things. But, you know, one acknowledges that up front. This is what we're doing. Now, we're interested in other species when they pass disease onto, onto, onto human beings. So if we're thinking about malaria, for example, we're not interested in the mosquito per se, but the mosquito in relation to its transmission of a parasite to human beings. Then it becomes a more sort of complex ecology, etc. thing about the human in relation to the parasite, in relation um, uh, to the host, the mosquito that is carrying it around. So, seems obvious, but it needs to be stated. Disease ecology, what is it? The study of underlying principles that influence the spatial-temporal patterns of disease. Spatial-temporal patterns of disease. Disease patterns change. They change across time and they change across space. What we consider to be diseases of the so-called third world or the global south are now global diseases. Take, for example, tuberculosis, which for many years across the 20th century was considered to be something that was an issue of, of the global south. Now it's everywhere. And those patterns are constantly changing. The places where tuberculosis is increasing fastest, for example, is places like Russia, uh, which was completely unexpected. When you know, sub-Saharan Africa saw the last great uh, resurgence of, of, of tuberculosis. So, for example... It's about the incidence, spatial distribution, and the timing of diseases. Incidence, that is, number of cases, taking on kind of epidemiological ways of thinking about things. The spatial distribution, why does it happen in one place and not another place? Why were infectious diseases higher in one part of London in the 19th century compared to another part of London? Close to the river, high levels of infectious disease because of waterborne infections that were carried in, uh, in, in the river and the effluent that came into the river. Much lower up the hill when you go up to Hampstead where all the posh people live um, and, uh, and there's less exposure to uh, those infectious disease. In fact, you can even build a human ecological case for the toilet and how that changed infectious disease patterns because it did. Um, the first flushing toilet flushed effluent from up the hill in Hampstead down to the river 
uh, for where, 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 where poorer people lived. So that's spatial distribution tongue diseases. That's a 19th century example, but I am certain if I pressed any one person in this room, you would have some idea, could give an example of a spatial distribution and timing of a particular disease that, that, that uh, you, you have, have thought about. It reflects the interactions of populations of humans and pathogenic species. Populations not individuals. When we talk about medicine, it's my symptoms, my disease, and how I manage or, 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 or relate to that. But it's about populations, pathogenic species, with each other in the environment. That's an awful lot of potential problems in thinking about um, these, these sets of relationships. So population, group or community, not the individual. But individuals are members of populations. The population construct itself is, is something that is going under reinterpretation. You could say a population is wherever a group of people meet. You are a population of students right in front of me. I don't know if you're representative of the whole of the University of Oxford. I don't think you are. Because you have particular interests and you have particular approaches. There are two different sets of students that represent undergraduate and postgraduate students. Whether you're representative or not of a larger population, to some extent, yes. To some extent, no. So individuals are members of populations. Every one of you will leave this room and go somewhere else. Some of you will go to college, and then you go to your college community, which will become your college population. The idea of a population is not a static one. We have a national population, and a national population should be easy, you think. Except that national populations see people coming in, see people going out, in-migration, in out-migration. Um, you have people dying, you have people being born, so populations are a constantly changing thing. The British population now could not be seen as the British population 50 years ago, for example. Very different uh, in terms of sociodemographics. There are many different approaches to thinking about disease ecology. Geography, of course, because geography gives you the potential to map things, to look at spatial variation, spatial distribution through mapping. And mapping is cool. It's really nice. It's really beautiful. You produce beautiful objects um, that can give you information like that. Mapping is an art. Mapping is a science. And mapping is something that Oxford does particularly well. Um, there's, if you're interested in using mapping, <coughs> there are mapping courses and you can learn how to map the things of interest in ways that are useful for you. Epidemiology, the study of the, the medical study of disease patterns, um, which is taking these things again and saying, well, what are, what, what are the causative factors that lead to the expression of something we call disease? What we call disease is also problematic because how disease is perceived also changes and is, 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 is culturally mediated. And there's public health, which to a large extent um, is uh, an instrument of the state. So public health is the sort of thing which can be often seen as boring but important. If it's not there, people know about it. It's about the, the rules and regulations and making sure everything is, is fine, everything is, is, is good. For example, you're all used to food being safe. You wouldn't expect food to poison you. I've started making sauerkraut and kimchi, and I'm running risks because I'm starting to grow bacteria that uh, I have 
little familiarity with, and it's very exciting. <coughs> so the first principle is start with a very small sample and see what happens. So, in fact, I'm going to London on Sunday to go and eat kimchi that I made with a friend of mine um, a, a, a number of week, weeks ago, and he's very excited. So. And oddly enough, the rest of my family want to come along as well. So suddenly he's got everybody turning up to eat kimchi in his house. Um, so the food I'm making in my house is potentially dangerous. It's not pasteurized, it's living, it's bacteria. And the control I have over that is actually setting the initial boundary conditions and then watching what happens which is lovely, you develop a relationship with your food, which is actually very special because you're looking into this jar every day. You know, it's, it's great. Um, but public health would ensure that food is safe, that food is pasteurized, that the regulations to make sure that the milk is clean, that the, 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 the bread is clean, everything else is, whatever you eat, meets a certain standard that will not poison people. That's public health. It's important. Uh, but if it goes wrong, it can go badly wrong because we have a lot of people who interact with each other who need to be able to live their lives in, in a good way. So we have many, many regulations. Immunization, vaccination, so on. That all comes under the, the, the banner of public health. But epidemiology and public health speak to each other because epidemiology informs what public health practice might be. The two are so related. And then finally, systems, which is the thing that really excites me because... Thinking in terms of systems takes us to complexity. When we get to complexity, we start to deal with a real, messy world of the present day, using instruments that are suddenly becoming available to us to think about how to dig into that complexity. And that's when it gets exciting. And that's when I speed up because I get excited. Human ecology. The first example, a good example of, of uh, human ecological investigation. Cystichosis. You won't be examined on this, but... It's a disease that parrots get. 1929, um, there was an epidemic of uh, psittacosis um, in the United States, in California. Um, there was a great media frenzy when this happened. Nobody understood what was happening. Um, symptoms of the disease moved to severe anomia, pneumonia, fever, diarrhea, conjunctivitis, respiratory infection. Um, after the end of a week, some people went into a stupor or a coma, um, severe pneumonia, needing intensive care support, fatalities. All of this happened in a very short period of time. Imagine, you're in California living the dream, and suddenly there's something <laughs> among you that is killing you dramatically. The parallel you can draw is actually the United States, also California in, in, in the early 1980s, with the emergence of, of AIDS. Suddenly so here's something, here's a killer among us. We don't understand it. And so you've got to fall into classical uh, ways of, of dealing with, with, the, with the unknown, which is stigmatization, uh, which, is, which is invoking witchcraft, invoking othering, all kinds of things. Carl Friedrich Meyer was the guy who pulled all this together um, at the Hooper Foundation at the University of California. And what he identified was the psychosis across the species barrier. It came because of a popularity of a certain kind of pet, the Australian lorikeet. Do you know where you're going to find lorikeets in the UK? If you don't know, you must know. Um, it's Hyde Park in London. Actually, across London, there's loric wild lorikeets all over the place. If you're in Hyde Park first thing in the morning, preferably as the sun is rising, you'll see flocks of lorikeets. It's 
Fantastic. There's even a lorikeet man who feeds lorikeets. And if you're there at first thing in the morning, you'll see this very shambolic figure feeding the lorikeets. And they come and they sit on his hand and all the rest of it. But, you know, it's really nice, really nice. It's one of the bits of hidden London, if you will, that you, you probably ought to know about. So these lorikeets were bred in poor conditions, brought over from, uh, from, uh, uh, from Australia in crowded conditions. The patterns of disease didn't follow an obvious pattern, uh, were, were not obvious. There's no obvious cause, extreme pathology. There was a media frenzy, but once identifying that this was a disease that had crossed a species barrier, that it came from these birds, its implications for humans were much more severe than they were for the birds themselves. So birds had um, developed an <laughs> adaptation to them. But in humans, as a new disease, what does the disease do? It can suddenly become hugely, hugely infectious and become a killer because, uh, because there isn't a co-adaptation of humans to the disease. The other parallel would be malaria. For example, the malaria, there are many different genetic adaptations to malaria. One good reason for that is that at one stage, maybe several stages, across the evolutionary past, malaria was a major killer of human populations and hominin populations, and so genetic adaptations could emerge of many different kinds in different places that led to, um, to, 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 to increased survivorship. And now there are many different genetic adaptations to, 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 to malaria. When a disease is new, what can it do? It can be, you know, a, a new agent, cystic could be completely benign. You'd never see it, so it's not a disease. Secondly, alternatively, it could be something that is fast and furious, like measles. Runs through a population, kills lots of people, but actually jumps from person to person, running ahead of the ice, but maintaining itself, while being dysfunctional in terms of finding a, a, a co-evolutionary adaptation with its, with, with its host. So this would have been the first systematic study of, of disease ecology. Disease ecology is relevant in the present day, especially in relation to the emergence and transmission of new infectious diseases. We're at a time in history where infectious diseases have become much, much less common than chronic diseases. Chronic diseases like cancer, cardiovascular disease, and so on. That tipping happened maybe about 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago. Infectious diseases now are the ones that are known and are controlled and are regulated through systems and the places where they don't seem to be controlled and regulated so well is often because the systems to control and regulate them aren't kept up as well as they might be, for example. That is true of malaria, it's true of tuberculosis. The rise in, in Russia, for example, is partly because of, of, of poor reporting of tuberculosis, and so following people up to give medication is not as good as it might be, for example. The other places <coughs> with emerging infectious diseases, that across the last 10, 20 years, there's a lot of new diseases that have emerged across the species barrier into humans, have been very rapid response to them in identifying, trying to identify <coughs> what, the, uh, uh, what, what, uh, what, what the mechanism has been for transmission and then identifying ways of being able to cope with them. You can think very quickly, very easily in terms of SARS, Zika, would be the t Ebola would be the three easiest, quickest, simplest examples, most recent examples of diseases that have crossed the species barrier. Of course, 
How do they emerge? I'd say one simple word, disruption. Uh, all of this disruption, behavioral change, environmental change, urbanization, uh, chopping down the rainforest, uh, new patterns of land use, war. War is something that disrupts systems of control of infectious disease. Very simply, very strict, there are a number of reasons. Normal systems are broken down, people migrate, people are refugees, suddenly the ecology is, 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 uh, is disturbed. Climate change, of course, climate change. Then in relation to infectious diseases, microbial factors, which include shifting relations among populations of microbes, vectors, animals, and human hosts. So the relationships <coughs> between what can cause a disease, how it's carried, and the human being are also shifting and changing. So developing of new antigens, antibiotic resistance, new pathogenic vigor. What could be a disease or described as one disease 20 years ago might be quite different now, but there are new strains causing what seems to be the same thing. So these things are, are shifting, constantly shifting. Okay, very quickly, um, to give you a quick overview of the lectures, malaria. One reason for including malaria in this set of, of lectures is, well, we know a lot about it. And also a lot of, is known about malaria because of research done in Oxford. Okay, you pull to your strengths. This already takes us to something that I would call systems. This is a form of systems biology. It's an ecology because it involves a human being, a mosquito, and a parasite. All of them have their own life stages. The three have to come together to form a perfect storm. The parasite on its own, no. The parasite the mosquito, no. Parasite, mosquito, human, yes. And also that there are other forms of malaria than human malaria. There are different animal forms of malaria as well. But we're just interested in, in the human one. But even then, there are several types of parasites that undergo variations of this. I'm intimate with malaria. I've had it three times. I'm intimate with it. And know very well how you can by trying to regulate malaria through um, uh, anti-malarials, um, through different ways of, uh, of uh, uh, reducing contact with mosquitoes, can all, can, all, can all help. Or sometimes it can just go badly wrong. I've been, I worked in a hollow endemic area of Papua New Guinea. That means there's constant malarial transmission all the year round. And I lived in the bush for a lot that time. Actually, I'm probably lucky just to have gotten malaria, to be perfectly honest. I have had hookworm as well, and I've had Ascaris, uh, but this is not a lecture about the diseases I have had, although I could give a good talk about the diseases I have had, um, and it might be more entertaining than this one. In relation to um, nutrition, there'll be a lecture about malaria and anemia and iron deficiency. Potentially, um, the malaria parasite, the plasmodium, needs iron to be able to multiply and live. That in certain contexts, iron deficiency might actually be a good thing. In other contexts, no, but in the context of malaria, iron deficiency starves the parasite um, of its ability to grow. And the argument that's going to be built is that, that actually iron supplementation programs in hollow endemic malaria places are actually killing people. That's the argument that's going to be made. And it becomes political econ economic as well because there's a lot of vested interests in maintaining iron supplementation program, uh, programs. So that lecture will be complex, but listen carefully because it's really outrageous. Okay, the 
triangle that you should keep in your mind in relation to infectious disease is agent infectivity. That is, lots of things can cause diarrhea, but they are all their own unique species. They do their work in different ways, so they can infect you differently. Host susceptibility. Genetics and nutritional status are probably the two most important things that influence your susceptibility to a disease. So eating right means that you feed your immune system and not just your belly and body. You feed your immune system and your immune system is then in a position to resist, push back against agents that could infect. I'm going to talk about that in nutritional anthropology next term. All of this will be connected, of course. Uh, uh, because it's something that I did in an earlier part of my career, working on nutrition infection interactions, again in, in Papua New Guinea. And then finally, exposure to the social environment, climate, sanitation, access to healthcare. These are mitigating factors. Even if there is a lot of malaria out there and I just stay in this room and I keep the windows closed, I probably won't get malaria because the mosquitoes won't come in, if I can do that. So reducing environmental exposure, again in relation to malaria, is putting up bed nets so that people's exposure to the mosquitoes and to biting is reduced dramatically by <coughs> reducing individual, individual exposure. So infectivity, susceptibility, and environmental exposure. All of these things have to be put together. Like the fireman's mantra, a fire requires air, fuel, and heat. You need all three. Not one, not two, but all three need to, need to come together. Then change and emergence and transition. Disease across my lifetime, okay, I'm 65 years old, uh, across my lifetime has moved from this kind of north-south divide to something that is so much more mixed up. It's so much more mixed up because the infectious diseases of the global south have moved to the north, the chronic diseases as they were known in the global north have moved to the south. Everything is mixed up. I would hazard a guess that we're living in the biggest, uh, biggest disease transition period ever, <coughs> right now. And the problem about being in the middle of this transition is you really can't see it. Because when you're in the middle of it, what are you comparing with? You can often see things after the event. I'd say in 100 years' time, things will be very different. 50 years' time, things will be very, very different. Right now, everything is mixed up, and I believe it because we are in the middle of many different kinds of transitions that interlock with each other. Demographic, fertility transition, mortality transition, population aging, so the structure of populations is changing in most places in the world. Secondly, epidemiological, non-communicable diseases, overriding communicable diseases. And in many places, there's a so-called dual burden of disease. So you find this chronic disease, infectious disease, not just in the same country, not just in the same community, but sometimes in the same household. You find the same things happen. I had a student who worked in Kailicha, a township in South Africa, and she was looking at the dual burden of, of undernutrition, overnutrition, in the same households that these problems are, you know, mixing so much that you can't say, well, you know, there are discrete communities that have discrete health problems. It's not like that anymore. A child in one household is more likely to have similar health problems to a child in another household than to other people in that same household. 
Nutritional transition, diets are rapidly changing, physical activity is reducing as we mechanise everyday life. We'll talk more about that in nutritional anthropology next term. That the emergence of ultra-processed foods, these are the things that you find at the checkout almost everywhere that is high in fat, high in sugar, very tasty and not so good for you. And there's so much of it around. You go and look around the stores in the UK and just see how much sugar is cheaply available almost everywhere. This country is awash in sugar, if you're not aware of it yet. So associated with a number of late modern factors, late modernity and cultures of consumption, individualism and neoliberalism, the rise of uh, increased urbanism, socioeconomic position, socioeconomic status, and so on. All of these are changing. Just to illustrate how quickly things are changing, this is a slide from um, an international agency that looks at the infectious and chronic diseases in the world. So communicable diseases, that is infectious diseases in the blue, chronic diseases in the, in the, in the orange, showing this is by World Bank uh, classification of countries, low-income countries, low-middle-income countries, upper-middle, high-income countries. So slashing the world, world's nations into, into four tranches. This, of course, constantly changes. I redid this for 2013. Just compare those two, okay? First of all, even the low-income <coughs> countries, the number of deaths reduced dramatically. Non-communicable diseases, chronic diseases, has increased dramatically. It's only in the lowest of the low that these changes have not happened so, so dramatically, but even there, the non-communicable diseases um, are emergent and rapidly increasing. So that is just in eight years. That is such a dramatic shift just in those eight years. And it hasn't finished. It carries on changing. So that's one of the reasons I have this belief that we are in this transition to non-communicable diseases. Um, one issue that there's some focus on this term is, with, is, is inequality. Inequality is considerable across nations, of course, but there's also considerable inequality within countries. When thinking about health and well-being, this is just um, the Jubilee Line in London. Okay, so it's the Metro Line, it's the Tube Line. Um, this is Westminster, and there's Canning <coughs> Town, stops all the way in between. Male life expectancy in Westminster is five years greater than Canning Town. Actually, if we had the data for Canary Wharf, we'd find similar, right next to each other. The actually differences in health and well-being uh, can be considerable, even within a small urban space. The issue of urbanisation is very, very interesting because urbanisation creates a new complexity. And there's some views that if you do urbanisation right, you can make cities more healthy than any, you know, any kind of location that we've ever had in the past. The place I work in a lot is Copenhagen, and that's my exemplar of, the, of, 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 a, of a healthy city. The weather is worse than it is here, okay? It rains a lot, everybody grumbles about the rain, but hey, um, the community nature of the place, combined with its respect for history, combined with its love of modernity and design, and good architecture means they put things together in a really good world. You can have modernity and bicycles in the same place, and it works. Urban planners are taught about obesity. They're taught about chronic disease. They know about the things that can 
help construct healthy environments. Talking to planners there gives me great hope for the future that we can actually plan things in very positive ways to, to, to improve, uh, improve health and well-being. Inequality within nations, the strong relationships within societies between health and employment grade, housing tenure, education, income, social class. There's been an inversion of disease patterns within nations. What were the diseases of the rich, cardiovascular disease and diabetes, become diseases of the poor. And that flipping is also happening in lots of countries. I've done work in Poland um, where they had good data before the collapse of communism and could look at how that inversion was happening since the collapse of communism, when um, the chronic diseases become the diseases of the poor as opposed to diseases of the rich. This inversion is happening right now in India, for example. Relative income is also an issue for health, not absolute income. We are a comparative species and we are very status-seeking in many ways and we're looking not necessarily about where we sit in overall wealth and prosperity but in relation to the person who's next to us. The person that next to, who's next to us who may have, be smug and have more resources and be better off and so on could be a, a great source of anxiety because we actually see them on a day-to-day basis. Whereas, whereas somebody who's really poor and we never see them really don't come into our thinking at all. So inequality um, can be something that is uh, very powerful in its own right irrespective of absolute level of income. There's a thing called the Whitehall study in the UK that looked at um, chronic disease risk among public servants who are all well off, well paid, um, and showing that the people who are at the top of the ladder, very, very well off, at the top of the rank, usually their health risk is much, much lower than the health risk of people who are at the bottom of the rank. None of them are poor. Just the guys who are at the bottom are really stressed out. The guys at the top really pass things down the ladder. Yes, Prime Minister, I'll get on to that. Pass that down. Um, I've had a memo. Pass that down. Play golf this weekend, but maybe you should do this this weekend. Okay, so the person at the bottom of the ladder doesn't play golf, doesn't see his wife, his family's unhappy, he's unhappy, gets the job done on Monday morning, and this is happening every weekend. Relative income. Then to obesity, which is, which is what I like to talk about and research and to think about the materiality in this case of eating. We have a project that started on the, uh, that has started recently on the materiality of obesity and the materiality is always first of all straightforwardly food but also the context of the food. When you see a golden arch you see a prompt to want to eat a certain kind of food. Even before you've got close to it, you're being prompted to think about that certain kind of food. Who wants a burger right now? Okay, oh, yeah, okay. It's a little bit large. <laughs> or maybe you're just healthy people, which is fantastic. These things are selling dreams. This is selling a dream. This is the reality. That's what's being sold, the open road. Actually, the open road is gridlocked. I ride a bicycle so much now that I get really frustrated when I sit in a motor car and I have to wait more than 10 minutes in a traffic jam. I really struggle with sitting in a motor car. Obesity is a problematic and slippery category because um, the way it's measured is standardised. It's related. Its importance in, in disease ecology is in relation to body size and... Uh, mortality risk and in relation, to, uh, in, in relation to disease risk. Crunching it down, the relationships between <coughs> excess body fatness 
the chronic disease is overwhelmingly in relation to type 2 diabetes. So lecture on type 2 diabetes because this is one of the biggest epidemics in of the world at the moment, especially in China, especially in India, countries where it's rising very, very dramatically. Various kinds of heart disease cluster together to, to form a significant, to, to be associated with significant, significantly with obesity. Diabetes, okay, this is just a chart that shows number of people with diabetes worldwide. And actually, where are the numbers? The numbers are mostly in Asia. This is where people are developing type 2 diabetes. And it's not a benign disease. Um, I have a colleague, I used to work up here. I have a colleague who was a surgeon. He used to go up to the Torres Strait Islands um, once a year to run an amputation clinic. He was amputating people's limbs. People who had advanced type 2 diabetes, and, which was uncontrolled, because there's so much cellular damage in their bodies that it was leading to gangrene and these limbs had to be cut off. Annual surgery clinic to cut off limbs as a consequence of, of type 2 diabetes. Why did it become a common disease? Well, genetics, first of all, diversity, thrifty genotype idea, which is, which is in the literature, but being challenged at the moment, evolutionary basis for efficient metabolism in some groups. That is under challenge at the moment. Um, environmental factors, affluence, modernization, people living longer, industrialization of the diet, uh, decline in physical activity, obesity, formula feeding of infants, that is, formula feeding predisposes children to type diabetes through developmental programming, there'll be more about that later. Then the thrifty phenotype idea, the developmental programming and epigenetics that lead to increased risk of these diseases. Then there's cancer, which globally is the major cause of death. I'm moving to the third part now, and this is where I start to move into fifth gear. Epidemiology, approaches to disease <coughs> ecology, study of distribution, extent of disease in human populations. Variation, disease patterns, we've said all that, but it appropriates methods and ideas from other disciplines. It's very much an engineering approach to health that takes ideas from other places and applies those ideas to, um, to, uh, to, to health. Methodology is usually statistics and study design, but it's getting more interesting, especially with the application, for example, of artificial intelligence in looking for particular kinds of behavioral patterns, for example. Yesterday, there was a presentation by Aidan Doherty, who's talking about AI in studying physical activity patterns. So you can just take somebody's heart rate and you can look at the tracking trajectory and say, this person's probably running, this person's probably cycling, just from looking at the heart rate, because you can, you could, you can look at the particular uh, the, the, the wave patterns. So it's getting interesting. Disease in populations, but what is a population? I draw your attention to this book. I am third author in this book, in this edited volume. It was Population of the Human Sciences. The opening chapter is fantastic. You can find a number of chapters that will help you to think about populations. Because ever since genetics and genomics, population genetics and genomics, how we construct populations is now changing. And now, because of um, genome-wide association studies and UK Biobank, for example, you can now use Mendelian randomization to create a genetic population and then look at uh, disease risk factors in relation to genetic predispositions. And not just single genes, but any genes that you want to look at. So it's Mendelian randomization. Fairly new method, but really cool, because it means big data can now be used, big data approaches now be effectively used in, 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 uh, in epidemiology. 
There are many types of epidemiology. Study this at will. It changes, and I'd say most of the current ones here, cultural epidemiology, genetic epidemiology, social epidemiology, life course epidemiology. There are many different ways of being an epidemiologist. But there are problems. Understanding causation, that's a problem. Most of what epidemiology does is look at, look at associations. There's no magic social variable. In fact, social variables are very poorly constructed in much epidemiology to, to, to the present day. The quantification of social in, in, in information, how can it capture social process with, with health consequences? This is something that something like Google Health, for example, tries to do, to, to quantify social information that can be useful in looking at disease patterns, for example. Lots of different problems. Complexity versus generalization. Analysis of generation of health versus the generation of illness. Two different things. Health and well-being versus illness. Illness needs some kind of pathologized condition that can be described. Well-being is far more obscure. If I ask any of you, do you feel good this morning? Just put up your hand if you feel good this morning. Okay. Surround yourself with people who feel good and more of them who feel good. That's, that's a general. But the problem with that is it's a shifting category. You can feel good right now. Which please, for you, I apologise if you're not happy. Sorry. Um, I hope it's not me. When you walk out of, this, out of this room, your sense of happiness could change like that at a moment. So this is the generation of, of, um, of well-being, health and well-being. It's a very different thing. Human ecology um, is taking the ecology, general ecology from the 18th to 19th century into a 20th century approach to different kinds of ecologies. Uh, cultural ecology led to economic anthropology, ecological energetics, political ecology, human behavioral ecology, present day societies, understood in evolutionary terms, evolutionary ecology, human evolution in ecological terms. All of these terms are in the literature, but it's worth working out what way of disease is being framed because you can take all of these things as different kinds of thinking instruments to a particular problem. None of them are right, none of them are wrong. It's a question of what you want to know in relation to, in relation to uh, disease patterns. Then in terms of outcomes, if you're interested in evolution, this relationship between culture, evolution, human population variation potential out, uh, outcomes in evolutionary medicine, for example, in relation to natural selection, adaptation, and so on. If it, you're interested in differential disease patterns, then it's more medical ecology. They're different outcomes, but using the same kinds of, the same kinds of, uh, the same kinds of approaches. <coughs> then there's complexity. Humans are complex. Disease is complex. Disease management is complex. The relationality I've already mentioned, human health and illness, not just about individuals, but about the relationships they form with each other, with the diseases, with vectors, and so on. And this relationality is a constantly changing thing. Okay, this is the Kulabolus Dance Theatre. We'll take a look at the website. But how forms change. This kind of, the one constellation of, one set of relationships can shift into another one very, very quickly. As I've said, you move out of this room into another room to talk to other people. You're in a different set of, of, of relationships. Then there's life course genetics and epigenetics. Genetic environmental interactions, risk accumulating across the lifetime. Mothers contributing to accumulated risk through fetal environment, whether it's epigenetic or environmental control of gene expression. And grandmothers may contribute to accumulated risk through epigenetics. So it's not just where you are now, it's how you've gotten to where you are. And it's not necessarily just what you've experienced in your lifetime, it's also what your mother has experienced 
or your grandmother, this creates an issue because we need to know much more about women. And much of classical epidemiology has focused on men. So we have a, if we want to know about social mobility, we only know about men. Women's social mobility is much more complex. We don't have the instruments. We are, however, in my research unit, developing an instrument. We're working with historians to develop an instrument to think about social mobility in women. Because in relation to disease risk, chronic disease risk, we need to know about social mobility in women, not just about where people are in a, a social cascade at the present time. Systems. Disease as a systems outcome. This one I could spend a whole lecture talking about. What it does, it says actually, uh, Benjamin Ullman's fantastic guy in Amsterdam who has a systems approach to disease. He's saying, look, myocardial infarction, heart failure, atherosclerosis, high blood glucose, dyslipidemia, high cholesterol, these are all risk markers for things that we call diseases, like who's to say that something else wouldn't have got me if I hadn't had that heart attack right now? Actually, my risk markers for coronary heart disease would be one thing, but my risk markers for a whole range of other things would be elevated. And yet, the, the, the disease you know, sort of event horizon is me dropping down dead in front of me right now, which thankfully I haven't. I'll do that when I get out of the with this. Saying that all of these diseases are related, that in fact, there are a whole range of processes that are going on, physiology, physiology is going on, and we're looking at risk markers as though they're independent, that they match or map one-on-one -on -one to other things, and they don't. If you change one set of relationships, you will change everything. If, for example, you decide to eat less sugar, you will reduce your glucose load, reduce your potential for, for glucose toxicity, but you'll also reduce your hepatic insulin resistance, reduce your fatty liver, reduce your likelihood of developing heart, a heart attack, just through reducing sugar, because it will flow through in a different way. Okay, who's heard of Mornington Crescent? One person. Do you know how to play it? No, just no. Okay, I struggle. I've watched. I've watched. It's, it's, it's how to get from some random tube station in London to this tube station called Mornington Crescent, which nobody ever visits. It's very obscure. Simple thing is that there are many pathways to Mornington. You have to do this from memory, so you need a fantastic memory of the London underground system, really, really fantastic memory of the London underground system, such that someone can call you out if you've got it wrong. There's Mornington Crescent, it's just north of Euston. There are many pathways to Mornington Crescent. And as there are many pathways to chronic disease, they are not just a single event horizon with a bunch of risk factors. Actually, everything has a pathway dependency. So it's getting to that, path, to that, to that, to that set of pathways what you were as a child, were you breastfed, how did you live your life, were you happy as a child, did you have brothers and sisters, um, did you ever take up smoking, when did you become physically active, when did you become physically inactive, they're not simple things, it's how you live your life to the, to, 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 to the set of diseases that you are now exposed to and express. Then the other way of thinking about these systems in a simpler way, is to look at network relationships among diseases. Very good, fantastic network <coughs> mathematics available for, for biology. So just taking um, the disease zone, disease phenotype, 
disease genome, we know a number of genes are associated with particular diseases. So here's a gene that's associated with three different diseases. And here's another gene that's associated with these three diseases. Organizing that into a network pattern that shows you that actually most diseases cluster. Let's say these are cancers. And most cancer genes cluster, for example. Gives you a lot of information. So if you find a particular gene, a small group of genes, that associate with one cancer, that will mean higher risk of another cancer. Take this another level, uh, we can have a human disease network, human disease gene network that shows how these different diseases cluster. For example, up here, <coughs> we've got obesity and diabetes. The genetics of obesity and the genetics of diabetes are like that. But really, it's led some people to think about, not about obesity as a disease entity, or diabetes as a disease entity, but but diabetes, eventually, is a different disease category. You should put them together. What this can do is can challenge the way that we think about a disease, that we frame them as pathologies that need clinical management. And yet the biology of it is far more sophisticated. The biology of it is far different, that actually a number of disease categories might come together as different kinds of disease entities. We just frame them in a particular way because we see this and we have a history of how we diagnose and research a particular disease, disease category that becomes institutionalized in a hospital, in a textbook, and that's how they stay. And yet, we now have the technologies and the tools to be able to look at things in a, in a far more complex way. Okay, so here, you know, here's one example of respiratory and immunological diseases that cluster together, which you might expect. They're not discrete entities. Finally, before I finish, your body is mostly microbes, the microbiome. Coming back to my kimchi, coming back to my sauerkraut, I believe importing a microbiome that likes cabbage is a good thing. That's my belief. Um, I personally like cabbage, and I personally like cabbage in all its various forms, like all kinds of foods. But it's an interesting insight into how one thinks about your body, yourself. Yourself is not really yourself. It's yourself plus all the other organisms that live on it and in it. So we are an ecology. Your body is mostly microbiomes, and most of the time it's in balance, and sometimes it's not. Cholera hospital in Dhaka shows when things become imbalanced. What can we know about the microbiome that takes us to human ecology? The ecology is not just out there, it's in here. And for me, the exciting thing is I do food and nutrition. And for me, the relationship between the in here and the out there is food. It's not just the food, it's everything that goes with it. Again, ultimately, everything comes back to kimchi. I'm sorry. What's out there, what's in here, all related. And systems biology computer modeling can study the human microbiome as a single cohesive system to the point where these are people who are lean and obese and they can be identified as being people of different microbiomes according to the kind of food that they eat and according to the work that, that microbiome does in a, particular, in a particular body, in a particular person. So it's making, it's complicating the whole idea of disease uh, disease human relationships because the ecology environment is not just out there, it's in here. Everything related. Thank you.